This is Michael Cox for the In Common Podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Margot Clarvis, the head of nature-based solutions at Sequest Capital, having recently moved to this position after working for some time at another organization, Earth Security. Sequest Capital is a world-leading carbon asset project developer whose purpose is to transform the lives of communities whose health, well-being, and economic welfare are most at risk from climate change. As you'll hear, Margot and I met when we were both PhD students through a network called the Resilience Alliance, which had a terrific program called the Resilience Alliance Young Scholars, or RAISE, which we were both members of. During our conversation, we focused on the topic of nature-based solutions, unpacking what they are and what they aren't, and discussing what have been some of the critiques of this umbrella of approaches. Margot was careful to distinguish, for example, nature-based solutions from images of massive tree plantations that many scholars have been critical of. But there remains a tension that you'll hear in our conversation between the holistic goals of nature-based solutions and the funding environment they exist in that I think needs continued attention. In this context, Margot made the interesting argument that, although programs may be funded through the lens of carbon, it is possible for such programs to still provide holistic and socially responsible co-benefits, with the carbon sequestration occurring almost as a side effect. This may sound too good to be true, but I think I find it plausible, and if it's possible, it could offer a very real way forward for a carbon-centric path towards reconciling our relationships with nature. Another conclusion I took away from our conversation is that to effectively navigate the policy and business of carbon sequestration, we need to understand carbon finance or how projects can string together funds from different places to make things happen on the ground. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Margot Clarvis. Yeah, well, thanks for coming on, Margot. I actually, so I, I start the first question is always about the origin story, but I actually was trying to think yeah. about like the origin story of when I met you, and it was definitely through the Ray's Resilience yeah, you know, Alliance yeah. Scholars Program. Exactly. And I was just trying to remember the name of that program because I was thinking about some of the questions that you had in relation to my PhD. And I think Ray's kind of saved me a little bit in my PhD, I have to say. Oh, well, we can start there. <laughs> so that was, I mean, because that was a program within the Resilience Alliance. And it's Resilience Alliance is kind of, in some ways, this funny academic organization that's made of nodes, or at least it was. Most people don't really know what happened to it in the last like four or five years. But then it was like these 20 nodes, basically these people at different organizations. And you, if you got nominated by one of the big shots, you could be part of this like new cohort program. Is that what you remember about it? Yeah, exactly. So, but I wasn't in any of the nodes. Um, I was like an illegal usher. I sort of got <laughs> ushered in through, um, through Nate. Do you remember Nate Engel? Oh, Nate Engel, I do. Yeah, he's, at the world, he's been Engel, at the World Bank for a long time. He's, yeah, he's been at the World Bank uh, for ages. Um, in fact, when, um, whenever the last time I was in DC, I saw him. I st still keep in touch with him. But I was, because I was at the University of Geneva for my PhD, and nothing to do with the Resilience Alliance, but obviously my PhD was. And I'd somehow met Nate at some conference and we'd really hit it off and we're looking at really similar areas around um, adaptive governance and adaptive management in the water sector and um, and then yeah he's he was part of that um, and somehow got me involved and I don't know how he got me involved but um, <laughs> but anyway so I was uh, yeah I was allowed to be a part of that and it made such a big difference um, to my experience of a PhD, because I think I, I really struggled <laughs> during that time. You know, I, I'm really social. I like working a team. I'd, I'd worked before I'd done my master's and sort of ended up doing the PhD after my master's because I thought I needed to know more and thought a PhD would help me know more. Mm -hmm. And then realized as I went through that, oh my God, this actually just makes me feel like I know less and less and less that, the deeper I go through this process. Um, so yeah, I think I was sort of like in the midst of probably some kind of existential crisis by the time I'd met Nate. And uh, it was just really fantastic to have someone who was sort of working on similar similar issues and then to meet all you guys through the raids. I mean, what an amazing group that was. Yes. Just a brilliant cast of characters. 
working for all these like incredible professors who are at the absolute top of the game, but somehow doing this with, um, you know, a lot of, say sort of like scientific fervor, but also wanting to have a really good time while they were doing it, yep. which I think was, was very appreciated at that moment. Yeah, it was a great, I had a, in some ways a similar effect on me. It was one of the times when I realized, okay, this is something that I could enjoy doing if it means this. Of course, it doesn't always mean that, right? Afterwards, you have to kind of go home and lock yourself in a room and write your dissertation. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that's something that I've, it's interesting to hear you say that, Margo. And this is actually one of the reasons why I was interested in speaking with you, because like within academia, I have continued to kind of struggle with those aspects. I often feel like I would rather work with a team, you know, and some people say like, careful what you wish for, right? Because there's the whole academic freedom thing. But often I feel like I don't want to always have to be my own individual brand. And it's almost like yeah. I have to whisper that because you're supposed to want to want that, I guess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you're whispering it on a podcast. so Right. So I'm whispering <laughs> it to everyone who wants to listen. Yeah. And I think the, you know, I think that's sort of what frustrated me a little bit about the academic experience. Um was that I think actually quite, and you know, clearly most of the people in that group um, did want to be working with other people and did want to be working in this really collaborative way. And we kind of found a way of doing that. Um, But it feels like as you, I mean, you will know this far better than I, but as you go through your then academic career and move up and what I saw at the sort of professor class or whatever, was that that was not how you were judged and valued um and you know I've, I've worked in a lot of different situations where I've been torn down in meetings and <laughs> various things like that some pretty harsh experiences mm-hmm. but I did find academia really tough from just that sort of individualistic um perspective and and this lack of collegiality in a lot of things and um so I found the raise a uh intellectually like just a fantastic experience you know so many really bright people um trying to do really interesting things with so many different disciplines um but I also found it just so refreshing in terms of that kind of team spirit and and wanting to do really great work together across the world and mm-hmm. um you know so I I don't know whether it's how many of those people are still working together but um but yeah it was it was fantastic for me it just I think it kept me going at that point yeah yeah and it didn't feel like people were competitive it was a very kind of friendly welcoming environment yeah and people like Nate and and Mike Scoot and like all these and Chanda me like all these just really fantastic people who are obviously like doing incredible work um I yeah I just felt everyone was really sort of there to support each other and yep. I think academia in general could do with a bit more of that. <laughs> yep, totally. I should mention that Nate was one of the earliest guests on the podcast. I have also kept oh, in touch with he? him. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz I've wanted the podcast to have, you know, not just talking to academics but also talk to folks who got a PhD or interface with academia but but are doing something else. Academics Anonymous, Recovering Academics. That's right. Well, I do I do take seriously this kind of ivory tower concern that, you know, it's easy to kind of stay in your office and keep on writing without engaging. And if you don't engage, you don't know what you don't know. So it's it's mm, helpful to yeah. talk to people who are who are doing other things. You know, I think it's particularly critical now. Um, when, especially if you're working in any field that interfaces with climate or environment, um, if you're not engaging with what's going on on the ground, if you are staying in the ivory tower, what are you doing your research for? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like we're literally at crisis point. Who knows what's going to happen in the next 10, 20 years? I'm not going to be, don't worry, I'm not going to be like incredibly doomsday in, in this chat, but. I think we are at this point that is just so critical in ensuring that it's sort of like all hands on deck, all boots on the ground um, to try and like turn the ship around that I think this need for, you know, whatever it's called now, whether it's action research or whatever it might be, but that 
research is directly contributing to moving the needle to you know getting things changed in project whatever it might be but that there isn't there's some kind of application that is contributing to that and you know I, I understand that the role of you know scientific thought and you know you know that sort of exploratory side of it but it does sort of feel oh you had to sigh before that margo (laughs) no no but i think it's almost that feeling of like look when you're on a war footing everyone's got to focus um and i think that's sort of how i i feel about it now i went to an academic conference my first academic conference in years earlier this year and it felt so strange being just being back in that situation where you're listening to sort of what people are thinking about mm-hmm. and it's like that's great you know I'm really great you guys are all thinking about this but we need this to to change something or to support someone um or to identify where things need to be done better mm-hmm. um so I do sort of feel like that there's a place and a space for experimentation and all these kind of things. But I think at the moment we really need to be thinking, how does this really directly apply to, uh, yeah, just, just how we uh, mitigate climate change. How do we mitigate nature loss? How do we, you know, come up with new solutions and um, how do we deal with all of this? So Margo, you, you finished your PhD in spite of having some of those existential moments can you talk to me about what your steps, and that was at the University of Geneva. Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah. What were your next steps after that? And how did, I suppose, your PhD experience inform what you were what you tried to do? Yeah, so um, all the way through my PhD, I had been working part-time. So that was the other way that I'd kept my sanity. Um, so I carried on, I carried on working, um, you know in a, in a small kind of consulting capacity alongside the the phd work i should also say that it's really different in europe to the us i think in the us you guys have you have phd programs um there's more of a sense of being you know running going through a program you have teaching there's i think it's just a lot more guided whereas in many universities in europe it's you're much more a sort of paid researcher um that might do a bit of teaching that um you know is delivering analysis for whatever big project you're essentially being funded by um so it's a bit more it's it's less of a program and and more a sort of research role so that enabled me though to do this this work alongside the phd um firstly with an esg information provider that was called asset four and is now part of thomson reuters so sorry, ESG being environmental social governance, uh, information, so essentially non-financial information on companies relating to their um to their, I was gonna say impact, but it's really more about um their footprint on environment and sort of performance in relation to environmental issues, carbon emissions, you know, social and governance um issues. Uh so I'd done that and then I'd uh, gotten what I thought at the time was going to be my sort of dream job which was working with UNEP FI so that's the finance initiative of the um, UN environment program Um, and it was exhilarating kind of getting that and thinking like oh my god I'm gonna be working with the UN uh, in you know the UNEP program uh, on this platform that brings together 200 banks and investors and insurers and um, and it was it was fantastic. It was an amazing team. Um, there were many challenges to learning the working, the inner workings of the UN. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just I think that, you know, what everyone knows in terms of the challenges of, of the bureaucracy of the UN and, um, you know, trying to do a lot of programmatic work on sort of contract spaces and, and mm-hmm. things like this that um there were there were many wonderful things about the UN but also um a lot of frustrations not from the work we were doing or um or from the team but from the sort of bureaucracy of it all okay. um as I came towards the end of my PhD um 
I did some more freelance work. In fact, Nate and I did a piece of work um, together for WWF US on adaptive governance and management, I think, in the water sector. So, you know, I was sort of doing bits and bobs and started getting more and more um, involved in landscape finance and conservation finance, in part through my work with UNEP and then increasingly um, with an organization called Earth Security um, that had been set up uh, by um, uh, by someone called Alejandro Lutovsky. Um, and so gradually I sort of, I as I was finishing up with my PhD, um, I, I really transitioned into moving into working with Earth Security. I was still doing a bit of work with the university, helping them develop um, more training and education on sustainable finance so really bringing together the um the finance research institute together with the environmental um inst the environmental sciences department that i was in so that there could be a um sort of more cross fertilization between uh understanding the sort of the the relevances of these two different systems for each other which was great and it was really nice to sort of get involved in more in the teaching but also in trying to sort of break down some of some of the barriers around that and um yeah so gradually this sort of work morphed into um coming on full-time with earth security and then i spent the next uh i guess six or seven years with them okay so margo when you use the word finance which you have several times how would you like my brain to process it without knowing a lot of what that, because <laughs> a lot of folks in the, in the comments yeah. field, right? Like we don't, we, when we hear finance, that's like, that's business. That's a whole bunch of other people moving money around. We don't really know what to do with the term necessarily. So we maybe do unfair, unfair things with it. What do you do with it? <laughs> what do I do with it? I mean, I imagine someone's getting paid to change their behavior on the ground, or I think of some kind of like micro lending policy mm, i think of like yeah, one okay. of a couple specific types of policies particularly when you okay. attach the word landscape to it yeah yeah okay interesting i mean so essentially any project uh you know will need to find a source of finance to pay uh for it to um you know invest in basic infrastructure and pay people salaries and so forth um and they will need to have long-term funding streams to be able to continue to pay for that um really simply that's all i mean by finance it's like how are you paying for you know okay. a, a project to get going and how do you continue to pay for it over the long term and and essentially then it becomes a question of who is doing that you know what are the sources of funding and finance and um who are the who are the you know what are the different institutions they may be public they may be private um, and then there are many different instruments, um, which I won't go into for the purpose of this, but it, it's it's not really more complicated than that. Um, okay. When I talk about landscape finance, when I talk about financing nature-based solutions, you know, we're really talking about what is the normally sort of blend of public and private um, finance and, and funding sources that can get these projects off the ground to begin with, um, get them going, you know, pay for the different phases of development and then implementation. Um, how, what are the funding streams that help to continue to pay for that? Mm -hmm. um, and how are they paying that back? Okay, that helps a lot. So there is... In science, and I think outside of science, there's this kind of stereotypical problem of a funding agency always wanting to fund like a shiny new thing, a new project. Mm -hmm. I think you actually also see this in like philanthropy, right? Someone wants to like build a new building or there needs to be novelty to what's being funded. Yeah. And it's much harder to secure funding for something that's ongoing, but important. Right. And I mean, some people I suppose would say, well, you don't want to have to fund something in perpetuity you want to be able to transition away from funding a project am i right in thinking that longevity is maybe one of the main challenges here you've mentioned actually already the idea of like securing funding ongoing funding right yeah so i think uh, maybe a little bit different in terms of i mean for many of the kinds of projects that um 
that I have focused on. The real challenge is not that longevity. Um, well, it, it is in part, but let me let me start with, I mean, the major challenge for many um, of the types of different projects that I look at, and these could be nature-based solutions. I just was talking to you earlier about the green great infrastructure um, work that I'd been doing with Conservation International and IUCN earlier this year. Um, a lot of the challenge there is getting the upfront finance that's needed to pay for project development um and uh and you know in this initial implementation uh so that you've got you can kind of pass what we call this valley of death essentially which is for nature-based solutions it takes a really long time for you know trees to grow or or you know even if it's you know, six months until you can harvest crops and then get them to market or, um, you know, f to transition practices to then, you know, realise um, revenues from, from different, you know, from various different sources. Um, so this can take a long time. Getting a project ready can take a really long time in terms of, you know, working with multiple different communities and different jurisdictions and getting the science right. And, you know, all of this takes a huge amount of time before you even make it to implementation. And then you've got to wait a while for nature to do its thing. Um, and then if you're, you know, if it's a carbon project, then you've got to go through um, the certification process and you've got to get credits issued. So, you know, all of this can take... I mean, minimum two years. So you've got to convince an investor, you know, someone to front you that money, you know, with saying, that's great. You're not going to see anything from this for another two or three years. And that's asking people to take a really, really big risk. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the work in this field has been around, like, how do you get over that? How do you have the right sort of like, risk structures in place to convince people to get into this more and you know a friend of mine said a while ago it, it it's felt like anyone who's been working in this field of this intersection of sort of nature and climate resilience and an investment um has been shouting into the wind for like years and years and years and now everyone's interested and it's like you're being sort of overwhelmed by you're like drowning in the tsunami that's <laughs> coming back that's not to say there aren't still a lot of challenges with trying to attract investment you know investment is still it's nature is woefully underfunded um but there is at least um growing interest by investors and corporates yeah. and banks in terms of how they can can start um providing the finance for nature-based solutions why do you think that's been such a change recently? I think everyone sort of finally hit the panic button um, in terms of the realization of what's happening with climate and understanding how the loss of nature and biodiversity is just going to make that so much worse. Um, if not on its own, just potentially be even more dire than than climate change alone so i think there's been a gradual acceptance of the reality that we could be heading into um there are at the same time you know and, and driven by this realization um there are different um you know, there are different processes emerging, like the task force on nature related financial disclosures. So a few years ago, um, there was the task force on uh, climate related financial disclosure, which included, um, which basically was starting to require um, financial institutions to disclose their their impacts on climate change but also how exposed they are to risks from climate change so this is a game changer in terms you know what what investors and um different financial institutions actually have to you know insurance companies everything uh how they need to understand their exposure 
and uh, and be transparent about their exposure and influence on this issue. And the same is now happening with um, with nature. So there's a task force for nature related disclosures that sort of just in it kicked off the beginning of last year or year before. Um, and they're just gearing up to release their sort of final framework. So this, again, will have, you know, just an enormous impact on um, on companies and financial institutions to be to understand and be transparent about how exposed they are to these crises, Mm. um, but also what their own, you know, project and um, portfolio impact is uh, on biodiversity loss, for example. So at the same time, there's other things like the science-based targets initiative that again, you know, they've they've come up with this framework around climate change for how to make uh how corporates and financial institutions can make adequate um commitments um to net zero and what those commitments need to look like. Um and they're doing the same process with the with science-based targets for nature. So where we've seen, you know, it's sort of climate lead nature and biodiversity is sort of you know coming coming pretty quickly up the rear um in terms of awareness and consciousness and then you know corporate and and finance action on on how they engage in um in changing business behavior and then you know investing in solutions as well okay so Margie, you've mentioned this term now, nature-based solutions a few times can you tell me more about what that is you mentioned in our kind of lead up to this, that it's a it's an umbrella term with a bunch of stuff in it. But can you give me some examples of projects that you've involved in, for example, that that go into that category? Yeah, sure. So we're just talking about the protection, conservation, restoration, like sustainable management of um, of ecosystems, you know, terrestrial, coastal, marine. Um, but in a way that the reason why they're solutions is, and I realize I've just done air quotes that no one's going to see. Um, the reason why they're solutions is essentially because it is about how you use uh, conservation and, and sustainable management and restoration of ecosystems to address um, societal, you know, community needs um, and challenges, whether that be climate resilience or um, economic issues, you know, loss of productivity, um, and that these solutions should be providing holistic benefits from, um, you know, to human well from human well being, community welfare, you know, boosting ecosystem services, climate resilience, and and biodiversity. So, it's an umbrella term. Um, that really is about the use of conservation and restoration um, in order to resolve, you know, many of the problems that, that we'll be really familiar with. And um, and I I think one thing to that's important to always remember is that I think what you see criticised a lot at the moment in in this sort of area is this sense that. Um, you know, ecosystem restoration or, or, you know, massive forest replanting and things like this that are actually not nature-based solutions. So, you know, you'll you'll hear about the restoration of, of, of um, you know, forests or, you know, probably I know that a lot of carbon projects in the US have been really criticised in this in terms of, you know, you're kind of talking about improved land management actions that are kind of maximising carbon storage or the avoidance of, of carbon yep. um, with detriment to actually ecosystem resilience and climate resilience. And you're actually creating systems that are probably less resilient to climate change or in, you know, worst case scenarios, you know, huge uh, tree planting programs or or protection programs that are kicking essentially you know not allowing um traditional owners of the land onto the land so and so i would just be really clear that that is not nature-based solutions (laughs) sort of monoculture forest planting um or just you know looking at a landscape thing oh we can put a few trees there that that is not nature-based solutions nature-based solutions have to be in the context of the challenges that local communities are facing mm. um and they need to resolve for those at the same time 
um, the mitigation potential of restoring ecosystems is huge um, and is a really important piece of that nature-based solutions can deliver and a really important way that they can pay for themselves as well. In fact, one might argue in the absence of really any other PES scheme that really works, minus maybe a few examples around watershed protection, um, there's very few things that will pay for ecosystem restoration in the way that carbon will. Um, and so, you know, natural, the sort of more limited definition of, I guess, you know, nature-based solutions for purely carbon mitigation is natural climate solutions. And, you know, there were quite a few papers a few years ago that were suggesting that this could represent like 30% of mitigation need to stay within the two degree limit. So, you know, that side of it is, is really, really critical, but you only get there if you create systems within landscapes that work and build the resilience of the communities that, um, that rely on those landscapes and are the caretakers of those landscapes. Is there a, like a challenge or a tension here, Margot? In this, if if I'm hearing right, that a lot of the funds, there's a lot of enthusiasm for for carbon sequestration. The climate discourse is really powerful, but as you just said, and that was really helpful, that's leading down some unhelpful paths sometimes to projects that do not have that crowd out local use. And local cultures potential. I mean, to me, that's kind of the worst case. But also that maybe don't have longevity and they don't have additionality, right? That this is not we're paying for something that we would have gotten anyway, or maybe the trees burned yeah. down. Into yeah. So I think in the states, you've seen a lot of questioning around additionality mm -hmm. and around permanence. Mm -hmm. So you know, if we're going to be investing in. Um, if we're going to allow, and I, I think there's a difference between the generation of carbon credits and whether those credits are used as offsets. Yep. I'd also sort of separate those two things out. Um, Can you tell me why at some point? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Let's park that. Okay. <laughs> um, so essentially, you need to show that the carbon for additionality, you need to show that this project would not have happened if you didn't have carbon finance to pay for it. And that's where I think, you know, um, and I'm by no means an expert on the on the market in the States and the projects in the States. But I think that's been a really um, a challenging one for some of the projects that we've seen in the States, particularly around improved forest management. Um, secondly, permanent. So if you're going to be investing in biological removals and storage of carbon so in, in forests and mangroves and grasslands in soil um, then you need to show that those have a permanence over essentially 100 years um, and this I think is you know we've seen quite a few projects recently I think in the states that have had massive fire risks um and in Europe as well you know I think in Spain there was one project that went up in flames this summer um and so I you know for me it's that permanence piece is really critical to think about so certainly from, from my perspective, what we're doing now, the projects that we're working on are all about climate resilience. Therefore, they need to perform for the communities in the kinds of climate changes that we're going to see happening. Um, and I think for a lot of projects that are perhaps um, less focused on climate resilience, um, the huge elephant in the room at the moment is climate change. It's, it's ironic because... <laughs> This is an industry based on um, trying to, you know, contribute to the mitigation of climate that I think needs to take a really hard look at how they're quantifying climate risk. Um, that's, you know, those are the two of the big ones. And then there are other sort of key principles that these projects need to need to address. But I think certainly in, in the context of the states, like those two have been some of the challenging ones. And I'd also say that, you know, if you're designing... NB, you know, an MBS, then you're looking at the range of issues. You know, the, the sequestration isn't um, is isn't 
I don't want to say a side effect, but it sort of is a side effect of the program in terms of, you know, you're focused on, um, okay, these areas get flooded, for example, you know, every time the heavy rains are, we need to reforest the hills, we need to improve the soil health of the, um, of the agricultural lands in order to ensure that when the rains do come, not everything is just washed away and the practices that ensure that um, there is better water retention through root structures, through improved soil health, through all these things that we have, you know, more trees on arable and non-arable land. You know, all of this is about getting to a place where you're minimizing the risks that these communities have to deal with. Um, and then as, um, as a result of that, we're restocking the landscape we're removing carbon um and that can pay for the project um over the long run but that's not that is almost like like i say it's almost like a side effect mm -hmm. you know if you're doing the project right then you actually have all these other benefits that you can think about that improve soil facility, that improve, um, you know, the ability for crops to be more drought resistant when there's lower rain to reduce um, the amount of runoff and soil loss when there are heavy rains, you know, you're sort of improving all of that, you're, you're making a more resilient system, you're addressing people's food security challenges. Um, and then you can use the carbon revenues um, to invest in that community, to pay for it, to to share revenues with that community. You know, you're sort of like a long-term partnership mm -hmm. um, that Carbon allows you to finance. Got it. So at this point, I want all the listeners to go to Google and type in, what if it's a big hoax and we create a better world for nothing? Have you heard about this cartoon? Because it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it's the best one. I love it's that cartoon. the best cartoon. one, right? It's, I'm, I'm at the <laughs> Wikipedia entry right now. It's by this guy named Joel Pett and there's the climate summit and that's someone's just asking that at the conference. Yeah, yeah. Which feels odd. like what you're saying. A bit. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, and, I, and I think, you know, my frustration slightly at the moment is that I think quite rightly, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of focus on carbon markets right now, and there's a lot of uh, critiquing of carbon markets right now, and I think that is absolutely fair. You know, there's a lot of dodgy stuff <laughs> that should there's a lot of dodgy projects out there that should not be allowed and. Um, and that maybe were you know were certified many many years ago and um and i think it is right that there is more transparency um in how these projects work for climate work for local communities and work for nature this is just talking about it from the sort of agricultural forestry and land use perspective um what i really disagree with though is that um, this is a market that doesn't work, you know, and that we shouldn't have it and that, you know, it's sort of allowing people to get away with not doing anything about climate change because, I, you know, I'm not a carbon, I don't come with a carbon market background. I come with a background on, on you know, how do you build programs and fund those programs for conservation, um, for investing in, in nature. And there just isn't a great other alternative right now, you know, mm -hmm. unless you're seeking grant finance, um, grant funding. And and they're just, you know, we, we've heard a lot recently about biodiversity credits and a new market for biodiversity. But, you know, that's a long way off being realized. Um, and I think there's a lot of really big talk about how big that market is going to be but it's like we have a market right now that's paying premium prices for conservation projects that can demonstrate incredible outcomes for for people for nature and for climate um we need to make that work it's sort of like brexit <laughs> a bit different. okay all right here we go but it's no just in terms of one of my big arguments about not doing brexit um was that like what's the better solution and why is it not the right solution to 
understand the challenges of sort of the marriage that you're in essentially but make it work um and i think it's the same mm-hmm. with carbon markets it's you know yes of course there are challenges yes of course some projects really shouldn't be certified we need to ensure that communities are getting uh more from these projects we need to ensure that you know nature is getting more from these projects but there are some amazing examples and there are a lot of people working in this area that are doing a really incredible job Hmm. um and what's the better idea right what's the what's the best alternative yeah so two follow-up questions one is that you mentioned offsets yeah as something you had a kind of independent opinion about could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I don't want to say too much about it, but essentially, um, I think we just need to remember that one thing is um, like a, a verified carbon unit or carbon credit that you generate from a project, which is essentially, mm-hmm. a, you know, one ton of CO2 equivalent. Um, and the other thing is how that is used. Carbon credits don't necessarily become carbon offsets. Um, so whatever you may think about offsets, um, that is not the only use of carbon credits, essentially. So it's not just all about companies offsetting um, or individuals. You know, I think we have to remember that individuals buy these things as well. That it's not just about, you know, offsetting uh, climate emissions, but there are there's an increasing interest in um the purchase of carbon credits not to offset one's own emissions or one the organization's emissions because right so what we're talking about is carbon offsets which are part of carbon market programs which people they're not automatically part of a carbon market but they're pretty commonly associated with them and they're a way for someone to say well instead of lowering my emissions i'm going to purchase an offset and the value that offset needs to come from some sequestration activities happening somewhere else are you saying margo that like the carbon credits that carbon offsets are not the only conservation funding mechanism that can come out of carbon markets. So I think I'm saying that, I mean, there are different markets. There's the sort of, you know, there's the mandatory compliance markets that we're seeing more and more of. Yeah. Um, and then there's the voluntary market mm-hmm. um, where, you know, if, if you're booking a flight, you'll probably get a little pop-up uh, saying, do you want to offset your flight? And then you can, you know, purchase some credits to to do that offset Mm -hmm. um and it'll probably direct you to some tree planting program in africa (laughs) or in latin america um and so there's that um but there are and and corporates and investors can also um get involved in the voluntary market Mm -hmm. um but increasingly we're sort of seeing you know there is also interest in purchasing credits or investing in credits not to offset one's own or or the organization's emissions as well and i think as the the crisis that we're kind of careering into gets more intense particularly in particularly in europe which i think has sort of felt fairly sheltered from climate impacts and i think this summer really changed things um that you know there may be more interest in offset in credits not just from an offsetting perspective okay it'll become like i think you know some corporates probably already doing this and some companies probably already doing this thinking about it more as sort of csr you know corporate social responsibility yeah yeah than just than just um using them to offset their own emissions Another follow-up question, this is on the list of questions I sent you beforehand, and I think it fits really well with our conversation about essentially accountability and reporting. That does seem to be one of the main challenges with programs like these. And it's interesting to think about, to envision a program that says, we're going to do a variety of things with this landscape that's maybe more holistic um, than the simple storage of carbon. And as you said, that's kind of almost a side benefit um, for the project. My understanding would be, though, that if this is ultimately being funded for carbon storage, that that's what needs to get reported on. 
And so I'm just wondering, and this is not a criticism of anything you've said. I think this is like one of the governance challenges in most contexts is like, how do you actually know what your outcomes are and how do you come up with a set of outcomes that really capture the range of things you care about without overwhelming your ability to measure everything? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's um so I can I can explain a bit more about actually what you do need to what you do need to report on for these kinds of projects. Um so obviously the kinds of projects that we're implementing are certified through the registries with methodologies that are you know best in class as well. So there are sort of three main ones for the Molinchi market. There's Vera, there's Gold Standard, there's Plan Vivo, and there's a number of other I think there are two different things here. One is what you're required to report on in order to be certified and be able to list, um, to issue credits through those platforms, through those registries. But then there is another issue around um, sort of what's going on in the markets at the moment with an increasing focus on integrity. Remind me to go into that a bit later. Um, which I think comes to your point around how do we raise the bar to the standard that it needs to be, but without making it so difficult for everyone and so expensive mm -hmm. that a lot of, you know, particularly smaller players who might be doing incredible projects no longer have a route uh, to be able to pay for these kinds of projects um, through these, through these standards as well. So I think, so just to, take the first bit um there are certification programs that you need to go through in order to um, ensure that you can list the credits that are eventually generated um on those registries that is like the seal of approval that these are you know quality and real emissions reductions or removals for me it's sort of you know, like three things are really important here um one is that for those processes you need to obviously, you know, designing your program um, so that you can generate carbon reductions. Um, you need to design it so that you can, so that you can pay the whole program, you know, to begin with. Um, there is obviously a lot of rigor in the methodologies for, you know, how to account for that carbon, how to assess it, um, what you're going to be avoiding, what you're going to be removing. Um, but there's also, you know, a lot in terms of what is required um, to demonstrate if you want to get an additional label to that that might be around impacts, positive impacts for climate, community and biodiversity, for example. So there's like Barra has a CCB label. Um, they have a label that requires you to um, account for the SDG impacts. Um, where you have to have metrics, you know, in terms of um, uh, increased incomes, for example, of communities or improved, you know, improvements to what kind of infrastructure investments you're doing, what kind of livelihood benefits there are. So there's there's a lot of reporting on the sort of co-benefits of these projects that are already kind of locked up in the process. And especially if you're going for um, these labels that show that you're doing a project that has these massive uh, co-benefits for communities, nature and, and climate resilience. So I think that's that's sort of there. Um, I think what's really important for me, the sort of three things that are really important are how do you design these programs for sort of long term prosperity in the face of climate resilience? How do you work with communities um, so that you're investing in communities, you're not just sort of seeing them as like beneficiaries of a project, you know, that they're, this is a governance, you know, this is sort of core to the governance piece as well. How are you partnering communities, not kind of creating beneficiaries <laughs> of a project? That is the most important thing. Like, I think you're absolutely right, Margot, that that's, the crux of a lot of this is how do we avoid kind of over instrumentalizing a community in a local system as just another, you know, ledger on a spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah. And I think the challenge <laughs> yeah. is a lot of our lives are pretty instrumentalized, right? There's a, there's mm. a lack of intrinsic value, I think, in lots of places in, in large scale bureaucratic life. How, how do we do that? 
Because I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it just takes a lot of work. <laughs> So, <laughs> basically, you know. I mean, uh, fair enough. Sometimes I do think, I will say, sometimes I think people want like some big answer. And it's actually like, you know what? You kind of have to roll up your sleeves and work really hard. And I don't know what else to tell you if you want to have a good outcome. It's like, that's <laughs> unsatisfying in some ways, but also correct. Um, yeah. I mean, this require you know, the, so the program that we're piloting now in Malawi um, is you know, working with our chief scientist in Malawi in, for the organization, but he's based in Malawi and he's been, he's been researching and working and designing, you know, these uh, conservation agriculture systems and, you know, natural regeneration systems for like 30 years in Southern Africa. And it takes that kind of, ex it doesn't take necessarily 30 years of experience to do this right every time, but it does take an uh, um, an understanding of the nuance um, for what works. You know, in in our case, we're working primarily with uh, smallholder farmers and you know communities at the very bottom of the pyramid in Malawi and other countries where we're we're piloting at the moment. In in other countries, you know, next year we we'll, we may be looking at um, uh, herding communities. You know, more. No in, in other areas that'll that'll be a different sort of makeup in terms of the 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 different agroecologies but it requires an understanding of you know what works what are the challenges um what are the investments needed what are the incentives needed um how what how do you communicate the benefits of these programs um how do you yeah how do you understand the broad range of incentives that are needed to get through you know decades of um of common practice that in the case of Malawi you know many of the practices that we're trying to shift were introduced by British colonialists mm. who came in and introduced these absolute bonkers practice for the landscape and you know ridge tilling and all these things that have desperately awful consequences for what the landscape has become um and so yeah it just requires a lot of careful consideration a lot of engagement with the community a lot of working out what's going to work for them and i mean you've got to start there you know yeah i mean how much do you also think i i've, I've heard this phrase a couple of times in the last few years like personnel as policy Right, like getting the right people in the room that have some of the values internalized to yeah. do the really the really hard work. Yeah. Does, does that resonate with you at all? That does resonate. And I think it's also I think leadership's incredibly important. Um mm -hmm. we're also really lucky, you know, I'm feel incredibly fortunate um at the moment to be working with not only Trent, who I'm working with in Malawi, who like I say, you know, he's got 30, more than 30 years experience in these systems um but also our ceo who worked with the world bank for like 25 years and has done all sorts of different things and i think both of them what they bring to this is they understand why projects and why development intentions have failed um and they've seen it and they've experienced that and um and i think we mustn't forget that there's been an awful lot of projects that have gone into these places and you know with the best intentions um have you know very often with sort of short-term funding for say you know two years three years tried to change systems and then as soon as the project leaves it fails um and i think that again is just something that's really important that's what carbon finance can bring these pro we've got to be designing programs for that will be issuing credits for 20 30 years and we've got to show that those systems are going to stick and there will be permanence for far longer you know we're there for the long term we're there to build prosperity to build shared prosperity with communities um and we're using you know carbon revenue to to pay for that carbon finance to be able to pay for that and to be there in the long term 
And there are very, very few sources of, of finance that can can do that right now, that can be there for the long term. And I think that that's also really important. The, you know, the, the two other pieces that I think are really important to this from a sort of governance perspective is, and I'm sure this has come across, but you've got to focus beyond carbon. This is what comes at the end of a project. You've got to obviously design to be able to um, to be able to realize uh, those carbon removals or carbon avoidances and account for that. But you also need to be, um, you know, thinking far more broadly for how those other benefits enable the carbon to be realized. And I think so thinking beyond carbon is um, carbon enables all of this to happen, but the project design itself needs to go well beyond that. And then I think the, the third area for me that's really interesting around this is that there's just so much work in this space around kind of advancing impact data. Um, and, you know, if anyone's interested in anything to do with sort of nature tech and climate tech space in terms of using remote sensing to, you know, not just um, not just account for the carbon that is sequestered, uh, the growth rate of trees, you know, like everything's getting even soil carbon is a little bit trickier and it's not quite as as well served yet by that area. But there's an awful lot that's starting to happen in terms of um, non-carbon related impact data as well around local, um, you know, local ground temperatures, um, soil moisture, um, soil water content, you know, all of this that I think uh, for me is super interesting from demonstrating, from having proper data and metrics around the climate resilience and the climate adaptation benefits that you're generating as well, potentially at landscape scale. Mm. For me, those are, you know, those are just three really critical things to ensure that, you know, we are moving the needle on the sort of the governance piece, but uh, it's also really, you know, it's it's really exciting. I think there's there's one other thing that I feel like I'm probably not best uh, placed to to comment on, but there's also a lot um, around, you know, how these projects, how individual projects, are kind of nested and accounted for at the jurisdictional level. Um, so that's really thinking through this governance piece like far more clearly and either at a jurisdictional level that could be a region and increasingly now with everything that's going on in the negotiations in the UNFCCC negotiations around Article 6, which you may have heard about, um, at the national level as well. So I think I think the sector's moving, you know, pretty, it might seem slow to everyone else, but um, there's a lot of developments going on about the kind of like multi-layered governance pieces around... Um, around who benefits from these carbon projects as well. Mm. Could someone say that these projects are almost being underpaid for the range of benefits they're producing beyond the carbon that's actually being paid for? Yeah, I think they're massively underpaid. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. There, and there's, you know, there's a lot in the, I, th I think that's changing. I, I mean, I haven't done this and I haven't, I haven't seen it explicitly done, but I'm sure someone's done an evaluation on like average prices per ton of carbon in compared for a particular project versus actually like what is the what is the value of ecosystem mm -hmm. services that um, that that is actually generating. Right. You know, there's also a lot in terms of. Um, there's very differential pricing for different kinds of projects. Um, so blue carbons, uh, for example, tends to be, you know, way higher than um, than other projects. And mm. that in large part is because it's a very enigmatic, you know, coastal ecosystem. But that is in part because of all of the climate resilience benefits that mangroves play for reducing uh, the impact of, you know, coastal flooding, coastal storms. Um, the, you, you know, the, the clear linkage between um, uh, local, you know, fish populations and spawning grounds and therefore um, incomes of local fishermen um, and, you know, various other different social benefits. So I think there's some ecosystems um, 
for some types of carbon for certain ecosystems that is better recognized than for others. Really, that's really interesting. Okay, Margot, can we talk about your transition from is it Earth Security to Sequest Capital? So this is something that just happened recently for you. Yes. Um, yeah. So I I worked in London for about six, seven years, six years, I think, with um, with Earth Security, and it was fantastic. We, you know, did a lot of really wonderful. Um, it was very varied in terms of. Uh, on the one hand, I had a sort of portfolio of work that was related to direct sort of consulting and advisory services to corporates and and financial institutions around really sort of impact strategies that better matched the community and sort of country conditions. Um, I also, there was a lot of sort of more research, like sort of thought leadership work. So for example, a few years ago, this was on mangroves as a nature-based solution, kind of, you know, what's the business case for investing with them in mangroves? Um, and then there was also kind of more country-focused programs that were funded by organizations like the Swiss Development Cooperation Agency or the International Climate Initiative of the German government. And one of these was in the Philippines for that I ran for about five years that was working on, very focused on mangroves and, and coastal ecosystems and developing partnerships and solutions for how to how to get banks and insurance companies and corporates more interested in financing ecosystem-based adaptation particularly mangroves um so that was that was fantastic um covid hit <laughs> we, we had um yeah had two very small children. i had a one and a three-year-old at the beginning of covid and a full-time job and it was um it was brutal I, I just I'm sure in like 10 years I'm going to be in therapy about that time or something it was yeah. just it was so crazy and it just uh yeah my husband's from South Africa and my family was in Switzerland and I think after a year of the pandemic we're just like what what are we doing like what are we doing in London um so yeah so we just sort of I I think I just had a bit of a moment and we sort of just pulled the ripcord on life in the UK and just within a month moved back to Switzerland um and it just felt like the right time to rethink what I wanted to be working on hmm. um and I loved all the sort of like the industry strategic you know all of that it was incredibly intellectually satisfying um but the work that I really love doing is just getting stuff done you know getting stuff done on the ground and um and I just I think you can probably tell I sort of feel like we're at a moment where you know we've just got to do everything we can to turn the ship around and it just increasingly for me felt like I wanted to be working more with projects on the ground and um I you know there are a lot of people that um, I was very keen on working with. So I, I had this year essentially of working with Conservation International and um, IOM, the International Organization for Migration and AXA Climate and IUCN, just a range of different organizations looking more at um, more in the nitty gritty of, of different types of MBS, different program development, um, looking at it from different angles. Um, and uh, it just so happened that one of my clients was the Clean Cooking Alliance that I was developing their approach to how to think about clean cooking in a much more integral way as a sort of foundational practice to supporting nature-based solutions, sort of removing the, um, really removing a, a core and fundamental like driver of landscape degradation um, as part of, um, as part of nature-based solutions more broadly. And it was through that that I had the great fortune to meet um, Sequest Capital, uh, who is primarily um, a clean cooking company, really focused on um, enabling the transition of women from these incredibly harmful practices um, that is traditional three stone fire cooking. Um, but, you know, more as a transformation to sort of free up their time, free up their health, so that we can work with them on restocking the landscape on this sort of landscape restoration piece 
they've really focused on clean cooking the last 10 years or so, um, 12, 13 years. Um, and now are starting to build out this um, portfolio of work that works with the same communities, um, uses clean cooking as a foundation, but starts to build a more integrated program around um, restoration of, of uh, community forests, of woodlots, you know, all these things that are sort of taking the, once you've taken the pressure off um, uh, the local forests and woodlands, then you can start to think about, okay, how do we restock the landscape? How do we work with farmers who are primarily women? I think we always forget this. Um, how do you work with farmers uh, to then shift their agricultural practices, improve their food security, improve their yields, uh, restock arable um, arable land as well with with trees that are essentially regenerating every year and being cut every year. Um, so yeah, that was just it was really fortunate that I just happened to meet them while doing this work for the Clean Cooking Alliance, and then um, uh, yeah, just right right place, right time. So the projects you're involved in, Margot, have, I mean, it sounds similar in some ways to these carbon nature-based solution projects where in some sense, there's this technical aspect of, okay, we want to sequester carbon, but there's a lot of other stuff happening that we care about. And it sounds similar to me. And there's this technical intervention of these stoves, but really we care about kind of everything around it as well, which I think the modern intuition is that you need to, right? If you're going to be thinking about what women are doing and whether they're going to adopt a, a technology or not, you need to be thinking about traditional gender roles in lots of places, one presumes, and gender inequalities and all that. So yeah. it's, you know, heart, it's it's good to hear that you're all thinking about taking all of that on board. I mean, that is essentially at the heart of of sequest you know the tra the transformation of women's lives is is really the kind of fundamental driver you know and i think and this is i, I was mentioning ken earlier and this is really you know through the witnessing of years and years and years and years of development programs that haven't taken that into account uh as deeply as they should have done um and that if you don't free up women's time if you don't remove the drudgery if you don't restore their health these are the people who in many parts of the world are the caretakers of you know of the farms of the gardens of the woodlots of the um mm -hmm. of the community woodlands so um it's been quite amazing you know just to come into an organization that sort of has that at the heart of it and that understands that um and then of course you know when we're when we're moving into these more you know land-based projects then obviously you know we need to be very sensitive to most of the time it's the women doing all the work but it's the men who have an agreement you know who have that sort of informal tenure perhaps so you know there's a lot of dynamics in terms of um community agreements and you know as we think about the kind of um how do we do revenue sharing effectively um to really keep that gender lens sort of front and center in terms of how do we do this so that it reaps as comprehensive benefits for the communities and the women that that are the bedrock of those communities um and I think, you know, that's so that's something that we take very seriously and that we spend a lot of time thinking about. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.